0: Good morning. I found our, or I find, I guess, I continue to find our gospel reading this morning to be fascinating um, and difficult, and I, I'll just admit, I spent a fair bit of time this week arguing with God about it and Jesus, and you, I, I don't, I'm not sure about that, Jesus, and, and I can't say that I've totally, thankfully, got it figured out. Um, but 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 I'm in a good spot with it, I'm in a comfortable spot with it, and I, I do hope that I can bring you there with me. So if you've got a Bible, let's open it up. We're in Luke chapter 20, and you might have a, a, a Bible like this one, or a Bible on your phone, whatever it is, we're, we're okay with that here, but but I encourage you to open it up and to read along and to look at this passage with me. While you're finding it, I'll set the stage. Jesus is in the final week of his life in this passage from Luke. He is in Jerusalem. And we, we celebrate many of these events um, during Holy Week. And so if you remember, if you've been here on, on Palm Sunday, you'll remember that the, in this final week of his life, Jesus processed in Jerusalem very triumphantly uh, with much fanfare and much ado. And he processes in and he's staying in the city. And then early on that week, one of the first things he does is he goes to the temple. And he is furious with what he sees there and what's happening in God's holy and sacred place, God's house of worship. And so he overturns some of the men who are doing business there. He overturns their table and he drives them out. And he quotes from Isaiah. He said, my house is a house of prayer. It's not a house of business. It's not a house of um, overcharging. Um, It's not a house of, of extortion. It's a house of prayer. And so some of the Jewish leaders, well, I would say all of them, were not real happy about that. And so they're starting to plot, and they're trying to get Jesus. And so here he is a day later, and he's back in the temple, and he's teaching. He's teaching the folks, and, and they, they comprise a, a plan. And, and three sects of, of Jewish leaders, all none of whom like each other, but, but their dislike of Jesus is greater than their dislike of each other. So they team up. And they're going to come at him with three tricky questions. And so, for instance, um, they ask him, the very passage right before this, they say, Well, Jesus, what about um, money? Should we pay taxes to Caesar? And I I won't recount the story for you, but Jesus gives a fabulous answer, and it, it blows their minds. And so, finally, we have this group coming to him today. They're the Sadducees, and they're trying to trap Jesus. And so they have a theological question for him. But to understand what's going on, we need to know about these folks, the Sadducees. Who were they? Well, they were the elite class. They were the ones who controlled the temple. They were the ones who um, sat on the Sanhedrin, which was like the the council of Jewish leaders. They were the ones in charge. They were the elite um, priestly class in Jewish society. And so the other big group that we read about in the New Testament is what? It's the Pharisees, right? Jesus has lots of run-ins with the Pharisees. actually only a few with the Sadducees. Um, And and the Pharisees and the Sadducees were very different. They were very different folks. And this is just to give you a flavor of what Jesus was speaking into. The Pharisees, um, well, so they were different socially. The Pharisees had contempt for their Roman rulers. They had contempt. They saw them as like an, an evading and controlling army. The Roman rulers needed to be kicked out, thrown out, completely dismissed. That was the Pharisees' thought. Now the Sadducees, they were a little like, well, I think we'll work with them. I think we'll work for them. I think, you know, we can really make the best of our situation if we compromise with these Roman authorities. And so the Sadducees were known uh, for compromise. And what did that let them do? Well, it let them maintain power. The Romans let them be in charge. The Romans let them run the Jewish, um, the Jewish society. So, so the Sadducees liked that power, and they liked the Romans. Um, the Sadducees didn't really believe in all of the Old Testament. They said, well, the first five books, the Torah, the books of Moses, those are authoritative. We're not really going to deal with the rest of that stuff. It gets a little complicated, and, you know, those prophets, they don't like people in power, so we're just going to ignore that part. The Pharisees believed in all of the Old Testament. In fact, so much so that they were very strict about their laws, and they were, they were following them. Um, they're very legalistic, and that's what Jesus is often battling with those Pharisees about. And then finally, and this is important, they differed theologically. The Pharisees, and so this would include Paul. Paul was a Pharisee. They believed in a general resurrection, okay? They were waiting for a resurrection that God's chosen people, the Jews, were going to be raised from the dead, the Sadducees wanted nothing to do with this. They did not believe in the resurrection from the dead. That's why they were sad, you see. Thanks. Thank you. Sorry. I had to throw that one out there. <laughs> um, but no, really, they didn't believe in the resurrection. I don't know if that's why they were sad. But, but, but they thought it was crazy. Crazy. They thought it was insane. It's really interesting because sometimes we read history and we're like, "Oh, they were so naive back then. They believed in crazy stuff like miracles or resurrections." No, they didn't. Somebody raising, being raised from the dead, was just as preposterous to them as it is to our world today. That nobody believes this stuff, and so they come to Jesus with this this question. You know, they come to him with this question. And so they say here in verse, verses, um, where are we? Let's get them on the screen. Uh, verse 27, yeah. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us, so Moses, first five books of the Bible, writes this. That if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. Likewise, all seven left and no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. Now, first of all, if you're one of these brothers, you know, you've been through two or three, what are you thinking? You're like, I don't want anything to do with this woman. Um, They keep dying. I mean, it's like rapid fire, seven of them. And, And it's funny... And it highlights just how preposterous this scenario is. But the Sadducees asked this question. You know, he he married or she married seven men because the law, the, the Bible told her that's what she had to do. What's going to happen in the resurrection? What's going to happen in the resurrection? They were following the law. Why was this the law? Well, in those times, there was a huge concern for passing on the family line. And so these brothers took that responsibility. If their older brother died and there was no heir. They would take on the responsibility of passing on the family line. Um, certainly honor was part of this. But there are very, um, very practical things like property. What happens to property? How does it get transferred? Well through the, the oldest child mostly. And so there were very real concerns there. And the Sadducees say tell us about it Jesus. In the resurrection what happens? Now. Did they really want the answer to that question? No. They didn't care about the answer. They are trying to trap Jesus. And so they're saying, listen, if you believe in the resurrection, you have to dismiss part of the Old Testament. If you believe in the Old Testament, you have to dismiss this idea of resurrection. What are you going to do about it? And so Jesus responds, and it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Luke leaves out a phrase that Jesus says that we find in Matthew and Mark. He looks at them and he says, you're wrong. You're wrong. And there's two reasons why you're wrong. You don't understand the power of God and you don't understand the scriptures. You don't understand the power of God and you don't understand the scriptures. So the first part of Jesus' answer deals with the power of God. The Sadducees don't know it. They don't get it. They don't understand that a resurrected life could be quantitatively different in this life that we know now it can be completely different than how we understand things now and so you know they don't understand the fact that they're just because there's there's some um this structured marriage here that it might be completely different in the world to come that there's social status and elitism here they probably were expecting that if they believed in it in the world to come right and and jesus is saying no it, it doesn't work like that, what we can expect in the resurrected life is, is completely different. Let's see verses 34 to 36. Jesus responds to them like this. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. So that this time, these days, we marry and we're given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain that age and to the resurrection from the dead... Neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Sons of God, because they were sons of the resurrection. Now, the point here that Jesus is making, we, have, we kind of have to be careful. He's not trying to make a point about marriage, Okay. He talks about marriage, we're going to look at that briefly, but he's trying to make a point about the resurrection and the assumptions that the Sadducees were coming to this question with. They were just assuming that the way things are now is the way things would be in the future. And Jesus is just saying, he's saying, no, that's not the case. That's not the case. You quote this law from Moses, well, this law from Moses is about um, procreating and continuing the family line and who's going to have children. And in the age to come, there's no death. And if there's no death, there's no need to continue to pass things down like we've always done before. The power of God, even to eternal life, is Jesus' point. That you just don't understand, Sadducees, the power of God. And this is where I've been arguing some with God this week. Jesus does talk about marriage, and he says, We're not going to be married. And I'm like, well, I kind of like my marriage. I'd like to keep that, Jesus. And I think this is, again, where we have to be careful. The Sadducees didn't come to Jesus and say, who will be the prince charming of this widow when she gets to heaven? They didn't say who is going to be her one soulmate when she gets to heaven. They basically said, with whom will they carry on the family line? That was the point of the question. How will this family line be continued? And Jesus is saying, well, you don't need to worry about that in the age to come. There was not really a concern about relationship and romantic relationship. It was about practicality, legality. Who's going to keep this thing moving? And so Jesus is not necessarily talking about relationships. He's actually pretty silent on that part. And so we don't know too much of what this will look like. We don't know too much of how these relationships are going to work. And I don't simply mean marriages. I mean all of our relationships in the world to come. But you can count on this, okay? You can hang your hat on this. For those of you in here who have the best marriage possible, the best marriage you can imagine, it will be infinitely better in the world to come. However that relationship looks, it will be so perfect and so joyful because God is right there in the middle of it. And for those of you with the worst possible marriages, in the age to come, they will be completely redeemed. What that looks like, we don't know, but it will be completely and amazingly redeemed. So hang your hat on those two points. So the Sadducees didn't know the power of God. And they didn't know the scripture. So Jesus um, goes on and and he turns to scripture to prove his point. And he specifically quotes from the part of scripture that they um, believed in and thought was authoritative. And so verse 37, I think, yes. The dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not God of the dead, but God of the living, for all live to him. And so Jesus is saying, look, read your scriptures. And when the Lord is in the burning bush, and he's speaking to Moses, Moses says, who are you? What, what, what is this? Who are you, this burning bush? And he says, I am. He uses the present tense. I am the God of Abraham And the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, those men had been dead for a few thousand years at this point. And he says, I am their God. He doesn't say, well, I was their God or or, I'm the God they used to worship. He said, I am their God. It's a a present tense that, that somehow these three men, though dead, were still living. That they're still alive. And the God still is their God. Why? Because he's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. He's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And have they been resurrected yet? No. The resurrection hadn't happened. But they're alive. And one day they will be, once again, they will have resurrected bodies. And they will be with God and they'll be with us. Because God is their God. He's the God of the living. And so, Jesus has opened up then for us and for the Sadducees um, the power of God and the Scriptures. And I want to, you to consider this morning that in many ways we are like the Sadducees. That in many ways we can't comprehend the power of God, and in many ways we don't understand um, the Scriptures. And so, often, and in, in especially in the West, and especially in evangelical churches, when we talk about the resurrection, we, talk, we think about, in your minds, some sort of disembodied state. Okay, like we're all going to be sitting on clouds and playing harps all the time. That doesn't sound like fun to me. I mean, some of you, maybe you're a great harp player, and I'll listen to you, but I don't want to play it. We think like that, that, that somehow everything around us is just going to be destroyed, and we're going to be floating around in the sky somewhere in, in heaven. And that's not what Jesus is talking about. Paul is helpful here. He expands on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, Just listen to this carefully. This is some some great words here. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. The mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Paul very clearly speaks about a physical, bodily resurrection. Um, And he speaks about creation not being destroyed and pushed aside, but being renewed. And so this is very important, that, that we understand the Scriptures, and that we understand the power of God to do these things in our lives. Okay, If we think we're just going to be um, disembodied and separated from this world, it has profound implications on us. Okay, If creation doesn't matter, if it's simply going to be destroyed, then why should we take care of it? Why does it matter? God's going to burn it up anyway. right? Or if culture doesn't matter, why should we not just completely ignore it and say to heck with it, we're going to do our own thing all the time. Because God loves culture. He doesn't like bad culture and sinful culture, but he loves culture. That's part of his creation. And so these are very important things. I'm I'm going to stretch this analogy, see if you can bear with me. Let's say you were going to move to France. Now, if this was a temporary move, you know, for a couple months or even a few weeks, you might probably not really want to learn the language. You might not want to learn to like the food. And you probably, maybe, would sit back in judgment of the culture. Like, oh, these people are crazy. They're ridiculous. I can't wait to get back to America. I'm not learning French. I'm not eating dinner at 9 o'clock at night. I can't wait to go home. Now, if you were living there permanently, if you were moving to France and you were never coming home, you probably learn to like the culture. You probably learn the language you probably learn to love the food it, w- it would be a completely different outlook on life and, and so it is with this world we're here this is this is god's creation now there are parts that are very and dreadfully wrong please don't get me wrong here there are parts of this that are completely messed up and god's going to redeem those but but if we if we think we're going off to some place up in the sky and never coming back then we'll sit here in judgment on this world. We'll build up contempt in our hearts. I can't wait for God to rescue me from this. But instead, we realize that God loves this world. He loves it so much that instead of just destroying it, he sent his son to walk on it, to be among us, to be among this world so that it might be redeemed. He died on a cross so that so that the sin and the baggage and the, and the stuff that we are pouring out and breaking creation with can be forgiven, and so that one day it could be restored. And that's what we see in Jesus. He's been resurrected from the dead. You read the accounts of his resurrection, and he's, he's walking around in a body. He's eating fish. He's making fires for his disciples. He's a real person, but completely restored. And one day, and this is our hope, one day, this creation will be completely restored. There'll be no more huge storms slamming into islands and killing thousands of people. There'll be no more sin. There'll be no more death. Our aching bodies will be completely rejuvenated. Our broken relationships completely mended. And we'll sit in the presence of God. We'll enjoy everything he's given us. And we will know his love His grace and the mercy. O death, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for new life, for resurrected life, for engendering in us a love of this world you've created and for calling us to proclaim that love to every corner of the earth. And we sit and we hope one day, Lord, for restored bodies, restored relationships, restored creation, the chance to sit and to work and to love in your presence It will be unending and everlasting. So I pray, Lord, that even now we would anticipate that with our lives and with our thoughts. We would look forward to that great and glorious day of your return. And we ask this in Jesus Christ's holy and precious name. Amen.